This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the latest edition of Full Comment. I'm guest host Jamil Giovanni. The U.S. midterms were widely expected to be a red wave, even in some places called a red tsunami, with the Republican Party picking up big-time seat counts in the Congress and in Senate. That is not how it played out, however, and many political advisors, observers are now trying to figure out what exactly happened with the U.S. midterms and what the takeaways should be as the U.S. political machines start to gear toward 2024 and the coming presidential election. Many questions are left to be asked concerning the influence of former U.S. President Donald Trump, as well as what can be learned from the record amount of money spent in these elections across the United United States, a total of $16.7 billion spent in state and federal races, breaking the previous record of $13.7 billion. What are the takeaways from this and what can we expect next in the United States? We are joined by the managing director of MAD Global Strategy. He's a Republican strategist and the chief advisor to J.D. Vance's successful Senate campaign in Ohio, Jay Chabria. Jay, welcome to Full Comment. Hi, Jamil. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Now, there's a lot of big questions for us to tackle together here concerning uh, Donald Trump, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, what the takeaways are from the U.S. midterms. But I want to start with what your life has been like (laughs) over the last several months, working on what was one of the uh, hottest contested uh, U.S. Senate campaigns in the country, in Ohio. J.D. Vance, who, full disclosure, is a good friend of mine, was successful in winning uh, the Senate seat in Ohio. Uh, many people expected it to be competitive, but he certainly pulled away in the final vote counts, winning by a significant margin. Um, but you've been at this from not just this general election, but also working on the primary earlier this year and late last year as well. What has the last year been like for you? What is it like to work on one of these campaigns that are receiving so much national and international attention? Sure, sure. But before I go to that, when you did your intro and you talked about how many billions were spent in the U.S., I I spit out my coffee. Uh, I'm just stunned by that number. Boy, it is big business here. And uh, uh, I'm sure we can talk about that later. But, uh, you know, going into this, uh, this last, so it's actually been 19 months since um, the incumbent senator, uh, Rob Portman, here in Ohio, announced that he was uh, not going to run, and J.D. started to think about it. Um, you, know, you know, J.D.'s an interesting guy. Um, so I'll, I'll say this before we go into what happened last year. He was the first um, Ohioan to ever be elected to the Senate without ever having run for any office before. So this is not something that actually has ever happened. It's a historic election from that perspective. So there were, so that kind of thing actually presents its own challenges and opportunities too. Um, you know, when, when JD first started to decide, decided to do this, we had to build a structure from scratch because of it. 
um, when you when you put a a major campaign together, usually you have someone that's run for office before, someone that's got some inroads, and he basically had none of that. So we we were able to build something from scratch, and and the good thing about that is you can actually build it the right way, and you don't have the the baggage of uh, you know past failures. But there's also a challenge to scalability, and I think because of that, he was a severe underdog, even though. Folks, you know, in conservative media, folks maybe that that are very high information voters knew who he was. Um, the, the electorate didn't know who he was, and certainly the political establishment uh, was completely against him. So I live here in Columbus, Ohio, which is uh, the capital of the state, um, and you know I'm probably known as a very establishment Republican. Um, and there's a lot of lobbyists and a lot of political political operatives that live around me and and work around me. Um, and I'm going to tell you the the amount of people that thought that JD would be the next senator, uh, I could count on one hand uh, when we first started the process. So that's that's something you have to overcome, and that took a long time. Um, I, I'll say, you know, my life. When you talk about me personally, I mean, you know, I, I like to work hard no matter what. So I don't know that 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 changed so much, but certainly the focus and, and what we were trying to do was was uh, took up a lot, large part of it. Uh, you know, you have to build a strategy that is unique to JD's uh, uh, strengths and his weaknesses. You have to build a team that's unique to his strengths and weaknesses, and that's what I think we were able to do. And I'll, I'll give him a lot of credit for someone that's never done something like this. He learned very quickly. He took advice. He uh, has great instincts, um, and we were able to do it. We were able to scale it up, and we had a very contentious primary, as you alluded to. And if you want to talk about that, we can because that was uh, a primary where there was probably uh, north of ninety million dollars spent. Um, in it uh, here in Ohio, which uh, was absolutely insane. And we came into it uh, in a general election where we had a Democrat candidate who uh, was pretending to be a moderate who spent 40 or $50 million and a lot of that against us too. So those are its own challenges too. When you you know talk about the amount of money that goes into these American elections, Jay, just for perspective, like yeah. – you know, Canadian election laws are very different. And so we're spending a small fraction in a national race as what gets spent in a midterm um, election in the U.S. I mean, it's just such a big difference in scale. Can you just speak a bit to that? Like, what is it like doing politics with that much money? What does that money get spent on? How does it affect the decisions that you guys make? Sure. And, and you know, I've been doing this now for 26 years. Um, and I remember when uh, – so what, what you're talking about is something that I still have to wrap my head around because the money has scaled up so much. I remember when George W. Bush first started running and I was on a campaign that was against him in a primary and uh, we didn't go very far. But um, we were you – know, our goal was to raise $8 million for that primary or 8 or $9 million. And George W. Bush came in. I think the number was like $18 million. And this is a presidential primary. And we were like aghast that he had this much money. And it, it, it was just a jaw-dropping amount, uh, amount. And that wasn't, when you look at it, that long ago. Um, and now, you know, if it's like $18 million, $20 million in ante for a, a U.S. Senate primary in, uh, you know, a, a fairly large state like Ohio. But it, it is just amazing. So what does the money get spent on? Look, it's largely paid media. Certainly there are consultants 
and uh, there are, there's polling and there's other things that you, but it is almost exclusively all that money goes to, uh, to put money on TV and obviously digital advertising. That is where the bulk of it is. Um, there are other campaigns that will spend some different proportions in terms of what that is, but that is, that is what drives it. So if we go back to the Ohio race, which again, you know, J.D. Vance uh, won as a Republican uh, by a sizable margin of the vote, uh, declared fairly early on relative to some of the other, con- you know, hotly contested states, certainly. Um, why do you think you guys were able to win decisively, Jay? And, you know, the sort of red wave or the red tsunami didn't happen. Was there something unique about the campaign in Ohio? Well, there certainly were unique things, and um, I think what you're seeing right now are um, pundits. So, so I've learned a couple lessons. One is whatever you see on TV or whatever you see uh, by a columnist, uh, it's almost always going to be wrong. <laughs> They've been wrong on our race. They, they're, they're almost uniformly wrong about what happens in the country. Um, and I also think that you – and one thing I'd love to touch on is, uh, is the state of public polling uh, in, this, in the country, and I think that is just a disaster. Um, but what one of the things that I'm looking at here, and it's going to take me some time to do a real postmortem nationally, because as you know, as we're recording this, there, you know the House is still undecided. It looks like Republicans will take it. It's the Senate is very much undecided. Uh, Republicans are in a bad spot, but it, it's still possible that Republicans get the majority. So we don't really know exactly what happened. But certainly they didn't. But Republicans didn't come out in the numbers that we thought they would, or they or independents didn't vote Republican as they as we thought they would. Um, here in Ohio, one of the things that I think is the takeaway is J.D. ran a primary campaign, and he was certainly a populist. He was certainly a Republican, and he was very much on these issues that the Republican base cares about very much. And we didn't really change him for the general. Certainly, our language may have changed. The order in which we delivered a message might change. But it wasn't like we went and scrubbed his website and changed his positions as other candidates may have done. Um, we wanted to make sure that he was who he was and he talked about the things he cared about because at the end of the day, the candidate's got to drive the message. And one of the things I do think that um, consultants try to do is they don't really respect voters. I think they sometimes don't really um, believe that they're very smart. And my sense is that voters sniff out um, – People that are inauthentic, people that don't are talking about things that they really believe in, and they will push back against something like that. And I think that was a case that that was actually what happened here in the state. Um, our can't, our opponent uh, really took positions on TV that were counter to his twenty year voting record, and our goal as a campaign was to make sure that we told the truth and shined a light, shone a light on on his actual record. Um, and we really focused on his record the whole time. It wasn't about any of his personal stuff. It was really about his record and the words that he used um, and, and the, all the multiple positions he took. And uh, at the same time, we wanted to make sure that J.D. was as authentic a voice as possible. And I, and I think that was the recipe, to, uh, our, this recipe to our success here. So, Jay, as I'm hearing you talk about you know, how much money goes into these campaigns and how much of it is spent on media – I think a lot of people would assume that having a candidate who's really good on television is key to winning. And certainly I, I would imagine that's important. But then you look at Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and you know him losing to a guy who clearly did not come across well on television during <laughs> their debates. And I think it backs up your point that – you know, there is some substance here. Voters are thinking, you know, you do have to respect them. There's got to be some balance between, you know, 
good presentation on television, but also making sure people feel like you are being honest. Is that kind of a, a bit of a, a almost like a a check and balance on the money that you can't really, despite the fact that you can raise a lot of money, you still got to be able to connect with voters and give them something they're excited about. Well, look, you have to have enough money to, we were outspent in this general election and we won. Now, part of that is the demographics of Ohio shifted, but but uh, I think a big chunk of it is that we were able to show uh, voters who J.D. Vance really was and, and, and really are uh, on the counter case to that for our opponent. Um, so I think what you're saying is correct. Look, J.D.'s excellent on TV. He, he's, um, he was great on the debates. But there are candidates all over the place that are really poor in that medium uh, that get elected. So there are other ways to, to, cut, uh, to, you know, to cut that diamond. Um, and it, but this was certainly, certainly an advantage in our race. What you're, when you're, what you're talking about in Pennsylvania is absolutely right. Pennsylvania is getting a tough – is a very purple state, but it's leaning Democrat in a lot of ways. Um, you may have had two of the most uh, flawed candidates in the history of America running in that general election. Um, but Dr. Oz, I don't know that people believed what he was selling. Uh, I haven't delved into the numbers. I haven't really looked into it, but I, I, it was, it's a neighboring state to Ohio, as, as some of your listeners will know. So a, we share a lot of uh, cultural issues, especially on the western side of Pennsylvania. So I kind of have some kind of sense of it, and, and it, it does feel like it wasn't a real presentation. And I think that's a challenge. I think you've got to be true to your – you've got to really believe in what you want. And I know like on the abortion issue here um, with Dr. Oz, I – think he switched his position. And when you switch positions, voters want to know, did you really have a change of heart? Or is that something you're taking for political reasons? And um, I, and, and they suss this stuff out. They're, again, I, I really think voters are much smarter and they've got better instincts than people give them credit for. The But the reality is they don't pay attention to this like a lot of us do. And so they're going to pay attention to it when they want to. And our job as political professionals is to communicate with them in a way uh, that we can make sure that they understand what our message is, but also in the right timing that's uh, that's appropriate for them. Well, I, I would say I'm a bit surprised you made it this long into our conversation without mentioning Donald Trump. But I think it's probably <laughs> time to, uh, to to ask you about him sure. because – you know, you look at the performance of Dr. Oz, and I think some people are saying, well, that's evidence of, uh, you know, Trump picking the wrong candidates, backing the wrong people. Trump deserves some of the blame for, you know, uh, Republicans not being as successful in the midterms as many expected. But then you, you know, look at your election where he backed JD and JD did win and JD was successful. So do you think it's fair for people who are saying that this is evidence that Trump is not having a positive influence on the Republican Party. So, look, I, I everyone knows. I mean, from if, if people know my background, I, I've never been a Trump Republican, but I understand his appeal. I understand what he has done, and he has significantly changed uh, the Republican Party and the country in in many many ways. Um, and he's really tapped into something uh, in in this populist vein, trying to get at uh, the failure of big institutions, how they've left. Um, you know, middle class and working class people uh, behind. So he has done all of those things. One of the observations I'll make, and I, and I think I, I talked about this right at the top of the show, is there are a lot of pundits that are uh, claiming that they understand what happened last Tuesday. They have not one clue and they have a bunch of hot takes. That is something that I am convinced of. The, the, the media class, the pundit class here in America, and, and, and people go on your shows too in, in Canada talking about it. I, I did it the other day at the CBC. Most of them have never been on a race. They, are, they really just paid observers, and they don't know what they're talking about. 
Um, I think that Donald Trump did not have a great night in terms of the people that he endorsed. That is certain. Uh, J.D. was the uh, probably the one bright spot in, in the country. Um, but there's a, there's a bigger thing here, and, that, and that's the issues that he has identified. Um, if you look at a place like Florida, where you have Governor Ron DeSantis, who it, many pe- people say that he's going to be uh, you know, Donald Trump's big rival for the presidency in this next election, and, and it's certainly possible. But what did he run on? He really did not run away from the culture wars. He really ran, um, ran on um, you know, anti-masking, uh, keeping the schools open. He ran on transgender issues. He ran on a lot of things that the new right that Donald Trump has ushered in uh, believes in. And he won a decisive victory. I think it was 19 points, maybe 20 points that he won in Florida, which is a state that is, um, has been considered one of those um, you know, uh, purple states for a long time. Uh, so there, there are examples like that where people ran into those issues. Um, I, I do think there's one thing to think through, though. So Donald Trump, uh, for, uh, for as good as he was identifying the issues, um, a lot of his campaigns were run with, uh, you know, with less than professional manner. And they happened to win. Um, but they also, a lot of those people that he, uh, the, the political operatives that came out of that, um, historic victory that he had in 2016 aren't really very good at what they do. And I think the marketplace here in America has been flooded with people that aren't really good at it and haven't had to win tough elections. Um, so I think that might be something that you're seeing in some of these races where they're not as professional races as um, others might be. Uh, because I do think campaigns matter. I think the team that you put together matters. I think uh, the messages and the way in which you deliver them to voters matters in elections. Um, and you can't just ride these, uh, these national waves. But it, it really is unfortunate because Republicans had a big opportunity to, to have a huge election on Tuesday night. And even if we are able to take the, uh, the House and the Senate, which at least the House, I think we will. But even if we were we, we take them both, I think clearly we um, left some offices on the table. And, and that's a shame. You mentioned uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. And I Immediately what I saw on Twitter, and of course, Twitter is not real life, I I get that, um, was a lot of conservative commentators sort of gravitating to the narrative that the power has shifted and that it is now sort of in favor of Ron DeSantis, that he's got more momentum, he can challenge Trump and perhaps defeat Trump for uh, the opportunity to run for president in 2024. Do you think that Trump has lost momentum and, and that Ron DeSantis has picked it up? Where do you think Trump is right now? Yeah, I, I don't know that it's like that binary thing. So I think um, there's there's a couple things I would look at here. So again, I think Trump had a very mixed night. I think uh, it was not as good, but I, I don't. I would not write him off yet. Um, he, if you look at what happened on tu- on Tuesday. You're talking about a general elected, a general election electorate, which is a much bigger pool of people. Um, but the folks that will run, that will vote in a Republican primary in these primaries across the country, and, and your uh, listeners will know, you know, first you go to Iowa, then you go to New Hampshire, then you go to South Carolina, then you go to a whole bunch of other states, and those voters are very. Um, they're they're a very different class. Those are people that actually just go to every election, and they're very partisan. Um, amongst that group of people around the nation, Donald Trump is still got a, the, the gold standard and still the name. Um, and if you're going to go to try to try to defeat him, it's going to take a lot more than just having Trump have a, uh, you know, a, a, a subpar night on election night. Uh, 
because I still think that if you if you're trying to kill the king, you better go after him and kill him. And I don't think that that has happened yet. Um, I think if Trump decides to run again, I think he will be the prohibitive favorite. Um, and I think it will take a, a very a seasoned and um, uh, a, a very seasoned campaign to to be able to overthrow him. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm wondering if you could talk to us, Jay, a bit about the internal dynamics within the Republican Party, because I think to your point, a lot of people in media, a lot of the commentators like to make things very dramatic, you know, that there's like warring parties within the Republican faction. But then you look at some of these things and you see, you know, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Mitch McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund invested, you know, 32 million in the Ohio Senate race. They say that it was 77% of all of the uh, media spending in the Ohio race since mid-August. And so what you, what I think we saw in Ohio, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is both, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell's super PAC and Donald Trump both backing JD Vance and showing that there is perhaps not you know, these like clear divisions between different elements of the Republican Party. And maybe that might be how, you know, success is actually achieved. What, what do you say to that? Is it, is there more unity than, than maybe people see from the outside? Well, look, I, there are definitely people uh, when you, when you talk about a two party system um, and everyone's vying for power, they, they've also got their own little visions of, of how things should be run. I, I'm not going to paper over it. There is, there are absolutely people that are, are always jockeying for these different positions whether it's who is the current leader of the party, who is the uh, intellectual leader of the party, uh, who are the le- different leaders of the committees. Um, and so that's always happening. Uh, but you, you point out a very smart thing here in Ohio. We had support from Mitch McConnell and his team. We had support from Donald Trump and his team because he formed a super PAC uh, uh, full of his old advisors. And, and they spent some money on our behalf as well. There was help from a lot of folks because they knew Ohio was an important state and they knew that JD was a candidate that uh, could carry, could, could translate a lot of the vision um, uh, to, to a lot of voters. So I, I do think that there can be times that there's unity. And I think broadly speaking, we want the same things, but uh, there are certain, there are certain divisions in the party and look, the Democrats have them too. Um, they have them all over the place. So this is just a normal function of politics. And I, I, I don't think that there's anything different about this, this period of time than there has been in any other time. Yeah. I do want to ask you about the Democrats as well, but just one last question on this unity thing, because uh, Ben Shapiro um, over at the daily wire, he had a, a, a Twitter thread go viral after the midterms. And one of the things he says is that the Republican leadership class has been paralyzed by the Trump phenomenon and has failed to provide any leadership. And that's how he explained some of the um, underwhelming results in the midterms. Do you think there's anything to that, that sort of because of how powerful and influential Trump is, maybe some of the people who are supposed to be articulating a bigger vision of conservative politics for America sort of have their foot off the gas right now? 
So, you know, the way I interpret that, and, and maybe I'm wrong about it, but, you know, in 1994, when Republicans uh, took the House of Representatives uh, for the first time in decades, it, uh, Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. And what they did, is some of your listeners will remember, there was this thing called the Contract for America. And there was this platform where Republicans around the country could unite behind a positive agenda of things that they were going to do for the country. That's something that I don't think we've really done as a party for a long time. We, we're, we're very good at knocking down the big institutions and we're very good about saying that these things have failed us. And But but what are we going to do? How, what is our uh, our 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 policy agenda going to be that people can, you know, like really grab onto and, and understand um, and be for. Now, there's always danger politically doing that kind of thing, because then once you put something out there, the opponents can spend millions uh, attacking it and, and saying that, you know, you're not for uh, voters and you're not for uh, uh, different types of constituencies. So th- I, I recognize that. But there are serious positives to having something like that, too. It's, it's a vision that people can then get behind and say, boy, you really are for something. And if it's crafted the right way, I think we can do it. And I think that's, I think that's one of those things that I think we should be thinking about for the next election cycle. It will be very difficult when we're in a presidential because whoever is our standard bearer will, will hold the bully pulpit, will, you know, control the media narrative. But certainly for the next midterm election, I think those are opportunities for us uh, to think about. One of the glaring opportunities for growth for Republicans uh, that seems to stand out now at every election is just making even moderate inroads into black and Hispanic uh, communities. It was part of the narrative going into the midterms that, you know, because of dissatisfaction with Democrats, Republicans could pick up significant support among black and Hispanic men. From the exit poll so far, it looks like there was a percentage increase with those groups, but not enough to make much of a difference in outcomes. And I I looked at that and I thought, you know, I do think there's a difference between people being disaffected by the Democratic Party and saying, I don't like the Democrats versus people saying, I like Republicans. And I think Republicans have maybe um, underestimated how many people would rather just not vote um, rather than switch parties. Um, do you think that there's anything that can be learned from the midterms in terms of how Republicans can actually increase their support among black and Hispanic voters? Yeah, that's a very interesting point that you make. And, and, but the one thing I would say is I would caution you on the exit polls uh, because they are, have been notoriously you know, all over the place and wrong. And I think we'll have a better sense of this in the days and months to come. But uh, but certainly, if you want to just take that that slice there too, and I and I have not seen that evidence yet, uh, because I do know that there were some Republicans that were very bullish on the uh, the minority vote coming their way this election. But I'm a little bit less um, inclined to saying that that's the case. Um, I, I think it's much harder to, especially when you're talking talking about the African American vote here in in the country. I, I I've been part of campaigns where we've gotten up to. Um, you know, 18, 20% of the African American vote. Uh, but it was when we directly engaged them on the issues that they cared about, um, that as a community. And at that point, you're able to break some folks off. Now, crime certainly is a huge issue and it, and it affects black Americans, uh, disproportionately, um, in, in this country. And I think that that is something that Republicans were thinking that would just translate into more votes for them. But I do think that there are more. There's more work to be done 
where we're actually engaging them in their communities than the evidence that I've seen that we've actually done uh, in the future if, if that's something that we're really interested in doing as a party. Um, I think as, you know, on, in terms of the Hispanics, so like in Ohio, we've got a very low Hispanic population, so it's not something that um, I've got a lot of experience in here uh, in, in recent times, uh, just in the last couple of election cycles. But um, nationally, certainly it's a very conservative culture, as we know. And once you get further down and there are more generations of Hispanics coming into it, I, I do think that more of them will become, uh, will be willing to vote Republican. So I, I think that's a natural thing that's going to happen. But uh, I, I think, I, I hope we don't take it for granted just because d- Democrats fail them. Um, and I think Democrats have failed them in this country. They're not going to necessarily turn to us until, unless we actually have a, um, uh, an agenda that they can say, boy, you're really thinking about what we, what we care about. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting dynamics as um, you know the United States heads towards the 2024 election is what happens with Joe Biden, because I think uh, most people probably assumed heading into the midterms that Joe Biden would not be running for president in 2024. But after the results, now it seems to be a much more positive narrative around Joe Biden that perhaps he's necessary in order to be more competitive. I wonder if, one, do you agree uh, that this is, was a good result for Joe Biden? And two, do you think this might create the conditions for a longer period of time to make that pitch to black voters and Hispanic voters if Joe Biden and the status quo is going to continue that maybe now there's a it will be easier to make the sell that if you want something different if you want some kind of change you are going to need to consider the Republican option yeah I think those are good points and I so I let's talk about Biden first I think first of all yes of course this was a good night for him Um, he's still wildly unpopular but his party did a lot better than expectations, so there's, there are good things. But there's a very dangerous le- uh, a part of this, too. Um, this White House and Joe Biden has also said that he's not going to do anything different. Um, if the lessons that they learn from this are that their policies are what America needs, they're going to be wildly mistaken. And they will, in my opinion, lose a reelection uh, by great margins. Because these policies have 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 got lots of Americans suffering. Um, we may have had individual campaigns here. We may have had individual candidates that couldn't speak to it and couldn't take advantage of that this time. But I assure you that the next um, the nominee from our party will, and uh, that'll be a very different scenario for Joe Biden. Um, and and uh, let me also say this too before we talk about uh, continuing Black Americans. You know, the U.S. Senate map, whether we take the Senate or not this year when, when all is said and done, it is much more favorable to Republicans. There are going to be a lot more Democrat seats up that the, than this map was. So it is highly likely that Republicans take the Senate the next time, uh, next in two years. So there's, that's also got to be in the backdrop of all this. Um, is there an opportunity for us to communicate with black Americans and, and, and minorities in general? Of course there is. But that's going to largely depend on the next presidential candidate because they're going to be the ones uh, – that campaign is largely going to be the one that has to do this. Um, and there's got to be a concerted effort to doing it. Um, and But short of that, I, I think it's largely going to be the same kind of percentage, uh, maybe an uptick here and there. But it's not going to be something that is like uh, decisive in a, in, in a final election. Yeah. you know, Earlier, Jay, you mentioned polling. And I do want to spend some time on that because – most people listening uh, to our conversation right now probably have never been asked 
their opinion in, by a pollster. And I think a lot of people experience polling just in terms of, you know, as we read newspapers, listen to podcasts, right. as this thing that's being done out there somewhere, but we don't really, most of us aren't part of it. We don't really know what to make of it. We don't know how much to rely on it. You have websites like Real Clear Politics, who I think are trying to bring more accountability and structure to polling to make sure there's more integrity to the numbers that people receive. But I wondered from a campaign's perspective, how do you interpret polling? You know, two months ago, one month ago, one week ago, sure. when you guys are deciding how to, you know, use your resources, how to win this election, do, what do polls mean to you? Yeah, so this is this is an issue that I'm actually super passionate about. I actually wrote a piece for The Daily Caller about this a couple of years ago because public polling, there's two different things. There's public polling and then there's private polling. And I think public polling is an absolute disaster in America. Um, I think it's completely broken. I think uh, the way in which the media looks at polling is dishonest and hurts Amer the American people um, because they don't really understand it and they concentrate, concentrate on the horse race of who's up and who's down. And that is not the way I use uh, uh, me who does politics for a living. That's not the way we use polling. Um, I, I think it's been very difficult to, you know, historically uh, to understand, to get Trump voters to necessarily respond to polls. So that's skewed things. Certainly this time they overestimated Republicans uh, in their polling and, and we'll figure out why. But at the end of the day, what I do know is these folks don't know what they're doing. Now, there's, before I go into you know, our private polls and how we do it, um, you know, Monmouth University, which used to conduct this big public poll uh, of who's winning, who's not, in the last election cycle, they made a decision. And I really applaud the decision to not do horse race polling anymore. I think they, that does it, again, I think it does a disservice to people. What they do is they track the moods, the issues that people care about. And so you can kind of get a sense of where things are going, but they're not saying who's up, who's down, because I'm going to tell you, these guys are almost always wrong. And if they're right, they're lucky because they don't know what they're doing anymore. And polling's been broken for about 10, 12 years. Now, in the private side, you know, when we hire a pollster, uh, look, a lot of these guys have been missing the mark, too. Um, I know a lot of Republican pollsters that have not gotten uh, an election right in, in, you know, in several election cycles. Uh, but there are some that are very good, and I happen to think that the pollster that, I, that we use, Tony Fabrizio, who is Donald Trump's pollster, too, is one of the best in the business. And he was very accurate with his numbers. Uh, but with the way in which we use it is, sure, we get a ballot number. We know, okay, your candidate's up or your candidate's down. Uh, but that's usually the last thing I look at. Or if it's something I look at, it's not something I pay much attention to for most of the election cycle. What we do is we look at the issues that are most important. We look at the crosstabs. We look at the gettable voters. We look at what messages that they care about, what, what issues they care about. And we put a strategy in place and a, uh, a messaging strategy, a grassroots strategy based around those numbers is how do we move numbers towards us? And we also have these, uh, we, and beyond polling, we also use um, data analytics as well, too, to build models of the electorate so that we kind of know where things are. And when you use the combination of those two things, you can put together a very effective campaign. And by the end of it, I felt very comfortable. Uh, look, for my election here in Ohio, I, I predicted we were going to get 53 or 54%. Uh, as we sit here today, I think it's like 52.3, oh, I'm sorry, 53.3%. So I was right, right along where it was. But that's because the folks that we had do a good job on it. And we built a plan to get to where we needed to go. So um, there, there was a, a heck of a lot of irrational exuberance around the country, in my state, um, uh, uh, with how Republicans were going to do. And I don't really see why, that, uh, why they had those beliefs, but it's largely because these public polls are just 
terrible at what they do. Um, so I hope that answers the question, but you know, it, because we do use it very differently than the media uses it or the public uses it. Um, I wish the media would educate themselves on this, but I, but I, I don't hold any hope there because I think the media is also broken. So someone like Donald Trump would say that these public polls are skewed for a reason, that it's intentionally – I mean he's basically said it's a type of voter suppression. It's meant to influence whether people think it's possible for Republicans to win so that people will be discouraged to vote. Do you think there's reason to believe that there's some intention behind this or is it just no. a matter of wanting to get clicks? Like what's the reason? Yeah. So I look, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I think that, um, I think that they're just incompetent for the most part. Um, I do think polls get clicks. I think polls get viewership. I know that the media outlets love talking about polls because people love the horse race. They love this stuff. Um, I, I think, look, there's certainly some partisan polls that are there to either, uh, raise money for their candidates or to suppress votes, whatever. But, uh, but largely these university driven polls, these big news organization polls, I don't think that's what it is. I just think they're, they're really incompetent. They don't know what they're doing and they're, and it's a money grab for them. And I, and I wish they would stop because I think it's, it's very hurtful to, to, uh, to voters. Are you optimistic that the real clear politics accountability effort or no. some of these other things might actually change no. polling? Uh, no, no, I, I'm not. I'm not. Um, and, and look, I, I look at it too. Certainly I do. Uh, but I, I try not to look at the horse race numbers, the ballot numbers. No, the reason I, I, I'm not is because, again, as an industry, I think they've lost their way. They don't know what they're doing and they're, they're selling snake oil at this point. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic on all these other things. Um, I'm not pessimistic on polls. I, as if you're a campaign, I think that there's a lot of value to it, especially if you find a pollster that actually understands how to do it. Uh, but I am very, very pessimistic on the, this, the public polls out there. So what advice would you have for, you know, sort of the average person who doesn't have access to private polls? Should they put any stock into the public polls? Are there certain polling so what you should that are do, more reliable should, than others? No, I, I, would, I would. So, yeah, there's all these people that give grades. And remember, the grades are based on the last polls before the election. And a lot of times there, they it's um, – it's it's gamed. I do think that there is some uh, some stuff that they game to think to, to make it look like what they think the electorate's going to be. Uh, but what what I'll say, look, if you are an average person and you actually care about this stuff, don't look at the ballot number, especially early in the election cycle, because things can change. Campaigns can be run. Look, my job as a um, as a strategist is to change poll, polling numbers always. Even if, we, if we're up by 20, I'm going to try to get to up by 30. If we're down by 20, I'm going to try to win by two or three. Um, so campaigns have to be run. Um, and look, pundits will always look at these polls, especially early in a cycle, and say, oh my goodness, this candidate has no chance to win. And they, their, their coverage on it will be skewed. But they have not allowed the campaign to be run. Um, so if you're an average, if you're just a, a, someone that, that is interested in politics and wants to look at this thing, certainly look at polls, but look at them in the crosstabs. Ignore the ballot numbers. Look at where voters are. Look at what issues are driving them. And then as, as the same outfits continues to poll, look at the trends. If you start to understand those kinds of things, you'll have a better sense of where the electorate is, um, even if you don't know what the mix is. And look, one thing, that, one thing that's really interesting about polls, people think that they're very scientific. They're not. Um, certainly there's science behind them, but it's really about the inputs. It's how you... Um, determine what questions to ask, how you how you ask those questions, but also what are the demographics you're going to poll. 
Um, and those inputs really have a huge influence on what the uh, final output's going to be. Uh, so you got to really look at those things too. Um, and it's a very hard thing for a regular person to do. I, I, I don't doubt it. But, um, but still, you're going to get a basic sense of trend lines of where things are and where the country's going. And I think you'll have a better sense of it. But you will not know what the final number is. Well, it sounds like there's a business opportunity there for anyone who can put together a, <laughs> me, a reliable polling <laughs> methodology. Um, well, uh, lastly here, Jay, uh, you know, the expectation is that at some point in the coming days, Donald Trump is going to announce his intention to run for president in 2024. I'm just wondering if you can give us your thoughts on what to expect, uh, you know, in the next 12, 24 months. So um, what, are you, what are you seeing? You're not going to get a satisfying answer from me on this one, because if you're asking me to predict what Donald Trump's going to do or what the <laughs> aftermath's going to be, I am not the person. I don't know that there is a person that can do that. So I'm going to tell you, Jamil, I, I, do, I watch along and I, you know, I, I pass the popcorn to what I say. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. Well, certainly uh, with, with the likelihood of Trump coming back, we are not going to be longing for interesting news in uh, the world of American politics. He keeps things, uh, he keeps things unpredictable at, at minimum. So one time I was doing the CBC. Uh, I was up there in Canada. I think it was the 2018 elections. And I asked one of the producers, why do you guys care so much about what happens you know, in the American elections? And the producer said to me, well, we just want to see what happens next season on America. And I've always remembered that as, as you guys consume the media that we have down here, because I'm sure it is just something. It's like a reality show for, for, for you guys up there. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as long as uh, we don't have to worry about people suffering negative consequences, which I'm right, right, fair enough. That's the difference between the reality show that is Donald Trump versus True. the reality show that is Kim Kardashian. There's actual human lives at stake. Um, Very true. Uh, but uh, but Jay, really appreciate you uh, joining us to talk about the midterms and uh, congratulations again on a successful campaign in Ohio. Uh, I think you guys uh, pulled something special off there, as you mentioned, with JD being the first person to be elected to the Senate from Ohio without serving in political office. And, you know, he's a young guy in his late thirties. I mean, there's, there's a lot of remarkable things about uh, that story and, um, you know, appreciate you sharing it with us. There is indeed. He's a remarkable candidate. He's a remarkable candidate and he's got a bright future. So I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Jay. Take care. Full comment is a post media podcast. I'm guest host, Jamil Giovanni. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music, where you can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help by giving us a rating or leaving a review. And of course, by telling your friends about us.